Let us pray before we get into God's word. Father, thank you so much for the time to come and to be a part of what you're doing, to be a part of this college where your truth, the Bible, your existence, Jesus, the Savior, can be clearly expressed, stood for, talked about, argued about, and simply dig into the reality of life at a place where education is essential and the word of God is true and just a wave just crashing over all that we do here at Sterling College. Again, I thank you for each student here. I pray that our hearts will be open to hear what you have to say to us this evening. I pray that I can be an instrument um, that you find suitable this evening. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is your mighty and precious name that I pray. Amen. My name is Rashawn Lamar Austin. Uh, it's my 10th, my t- sorry, wiping the sweat out of my eye. It's my 10th year at Sterling College, and I've worked in several different capacities while I've been here. got here in 2006 and uh, assisted Dean Jadiston for three years, I believe it was, Coach JV, maybe two years, Coach JV for the first two years. That was a very, very interesting experience. Uh, coached tennis for a couple years, assistant RD in Kilbourne for two years, taught in the TM department for five years, three of those years full-time. I've worked with Christian DeShield is my third chaplain I've worked with, so for eight years I've been part of the chapel program, so if you're complaining about going to chapels, I've been to like every chapel for eight years. <laughs> so, uh, so working with the chapel and particularly with the praise bands, I've, I've supported them since 2008, early 2007, and obviously this year much more hands-on and being involved in what they do. So I just want to give you a little bit of an idea of who I am. Uh, many of you have probably seen me riding my bicycle all over campus or from building to building and place to place and wondered, who's that? Who's that fella? Well, that's me. Uh, currently, I work under the IT department, work in the comm department, and continue to assist Christian DeShiel with chapel. So it's just a little bit about me. Uh, we've been rolling through the Book of Romans all semester, all year, actually. And it's a very, very good book. Uh, I know there's a lot of people at our college who may not, you know, read the Bible all the time or whatever. Not everybody's a, maybe a holy roller or a Bible thumper. If you're new to the faith and, you know, Christianity is something that you came to Sterling in college knowing that it was a Christian college, but not necessarily being a Christian, I'd encourage you to read the book of Romans if you want kind of a summary of the Bible for all practical purposes. It's 16 chapters, and everybody in here is high school educated. You could read that 16 chapters in probably 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes if you just sat down and did it. Uh, so if you wanted to just kind of get an overview of the scriptures in general, you know, the book of Romans is a great, great, great place to start. And as we get into this, I want to appeal to your ability to think. Anytime somebody stands up in front of you and talks about the Bible, you should ask yourself several questions, but we're only going to look at one. You should ask yourself, is this person talking to me about what the Bible actually says? There is a trend in preaching or Christianity of entertaining congregants, entertaining people who come because entertained people give more. We can build bigger buildings, you know, build a better mousetrap, that kind of thing. As thinking, objective, educated young people, ask yourself, is this person, including me, Rashawn, is this person communicating to me what the text says? Because a lot of people don't. A lot of people twist it to their own ends. I call it prostituting the gospel. You say, well, Rashawn, that's a harsh term. They prostitute the gospel for three reasons. Fame, fortune, and fornication. You know as well as I do, Catholic, Protestant, Jew, Gentile, 
whatever you want to say. We know today the church is filled with a lot of people who tickle people's ears for fame, fortune, and fornication. So as thinking young people, is Rashawn, anytime I sit under somebody who's talking about the Bible or talking about God, is this person communicating to me what the text is talking about? If not, you need to be like, uh, next. And one of the ways you can discern that is the TAN method. Has anybody heard of the TAN method, T-A-N, of kind of discerning talk or talking about the Bible? Well, I want to give it to you. It's a nice little tool, which I need to employ. You know what I'm doing, right? Putting my timer on. That's important. I wasn't going to text anyone. That'd be kind of rude. So, (laughs) that'd be kind of rude. The TAN method, okay? Then, always, now. You ask yourself the question. Somebody's talking to me about the Bible, and I, okay, I feel like they're legitimate. Can I understand what the hearers heard then? What did they hear then? What was the writer writing then? What did he expect them to hear then? That's the T. So it's discerning, intelligent, thinking people. What did, were they saying then? The A stands for always. Are there things that I can take out of this passage or out of this sermon that transcend culture, transcend time, transcend ethnicity, transcend socioeconomic status? Are there things that always are true, always matter, are always good and right, and I should heed them? The N stands for now. Is there anything now that I can apply? So that's a tool that you can use to kind of discern, think, right? Use my brain and say, okay, is there anything here that I can see that maybe he meant to say to them, they would have understand it differently because there's things in the, in the Old Testament that we wouldn't do today, right? We're not going to sacrifice goats, goats or bulls. Circumcision doesn't make us more important to God than not being circumcised. You're not going to circumcise. I mean, you might circumcise your child for religious reasons, but that religious reason doesn't carry any type of salvific weight, right? So there's things then that we won't do now. So it's important for you to say, well, that was then, but that doesn't necessarily apply now. But there might be principles that apply always, and there might be something specifically that you can take out of the passage and apply it now. So as we go through Romans, we're looking at chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. And this passage in and of itself does not necessarily cater to maybe an entertainment-oriented, consumer-oriented approach towards the gospel. Because what you see are two huge, very deep, very daunting, theological and doctrinally difficult things. You see God's sovereignty in the process of salvation. He is in control of it from the beginning to the end. And you see our moral free responsibility to choose. And if we take that out to its logical extension, it leads us to the place of the topics of predestination and election versus our free will and our choice. And I threw some couple, you know, big words at you. Basically, the idea of God's sovereignty, let's define that briefly. The idea that God is in control of everything. The God of the Bible is in control of everything. He is never surprised about what humanity does. He's never surprised about the choices we make. He doesn't wake up one day and say, oh, my goodness, I never thought X was going to do... Not Xavier, sorry. I never thought somebody was going to do that. You caught me totally off guard. I didn't know you were going to do that. You caught me totally... No, he's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He's totally in control of the system. Then you say, well, you know, Rashawn, is everything determined? If If he's in control of everything, the way I like to nuance that, I think that helps us understand it more clearly... God's in control of everything, but he doesn't control everything. Because if he controlled your choice, then you wouldn't be free, right? And this attention that you have to hold, okay, God is so sovereign that his sovereignty is so great and so immense and so spectacular that it can 
embrace our freedom to choose, right? So God has declared certain things to happen, and no matter what we do, those things are going to take place from the beginning to the end. Alpha and Omega, his sovereignty rules. He's in control of the whole story. At the same time, he's not a micromanager that is making sure, okay, you're going to choose him, you're going to choose her, you're going to go to this college, buy the blue card, not the red card, get this house, don't get that house. He's not micromanaging the situation. So we kind of start with this idea of God's sovereignty. And then this idea of our choice, responding to this sovereign God that we serve. Yes, he's in control. I don't believe he's a micromanager. And we do have choices that actually matter now and in eternity. Again, this passage is not one that lends itself to more of a consumer approach. So we're going we're gonna to kind of talk about things that might be intellectually not difficult, but heavier. And not necessarily, you know, maybe a lot of jokes or a lot of humor, but specifically digging into the text and see what it has to say to us. I broke this text down into three sections. And I think in each section you see clearly God's sovereignty in initiating the salvific process, and you see our necessity in choosing to respond to his initiative. So we'll look at section 1, Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. This is section 1. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who approach, who preach the good news. Without digging in it too deeply, at the very end we see, how can they preach unless they are sent? That means God is sending someone to preach so that some may hear and then believe, if we do it backwards, right? So God initiates the process of salvation. He calls some of us into the process and says, hey, you go communicate my message. Okay. I go communicate the message. Some people hear. Okay, they hear. And then the hearers have a choice to respond. Right? So we see God in the very first, the very first passage, the very first section, we see God taking the initiative, sovereignly in control of the process. He is initiating the salvific process. And we choose. Send, preach, hear, believe, or not believe. So we see in the first section, God's sovereign initiator is in control of it, but he's not controlling our choice, right? You hear it, and then you believe or choose not to believe. And that bottom portion, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I don't think Paul is literally talking about the beauty of people's feet, right? Now, we, we know that some of <clears throat> you <clears throat> have an unhealthy, maybe, obsession with people's feet. And that's, you know, what it is what it is. I'm not hating on you. But for the most part, you know, Paul is talking about the idea of someone being sent, right? And then traveling, right? Going somewhere. The beautiful, the feet, people who are traveling to come communicate this message. This is a beautiful thing, a good thing that is taking place. So, again, in the first section, we see God sovereignly taking the initiative and we who hear choose to believe or not to believe. All right, section 2, verses 16 through 18. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, or through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? 
Indeed, they have heard, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Well, here Paul is referencing Psalm chapter 19, and he's basically saying if we kind of you know, turn the, the clock back a couple of weeks or a couple of months, we go back to earlier in Romans when he says no one has an excuse, right? Because God's divine nature is evident because of the intricacy of creation, basically. Some of us may believe that we don't live in a created universe, that it was an accident. And that's okay. You know, people have been believing that for years, and people keep believing it for another 100, 150 years. Jesus, Terry. Paul is saying, though, that no one has an excuse to deny God's existence because it is evident by the enormous intricacy in design and creation. Cer- certainly something bigger, brighter, and better than us is the cause for what we experience as human beings. And I just ask you to reflect briefly and think about the idea of how intricate the human soul is. Have you ever asked the self, yourself the limitation of your imagination? Have you ever said, you know, is my imagination limited? Is, is, there, is there a place where you could think of that my imagination can't go? And say you, you, you could actually measure or quantify your intelligence in a bucket of beans, and you say, okay, all my beans are used, and I can imagine no further. So if somebody adds a couple beans, what happens? I can imagine more, right? So you kind of think about just the intricacy of the human soul, the ability to, to see, to smell, to taste, how intricate our personhood is. Certainly something bigger, better, more amazing than us caused this amazing environment that we find ourselves in. Certainly something had to. It didn't just happen based on time times chance times nothing, right? Certainly there had to be a cause to this amazing thing that we call human experience And Paul is saying no one has an excuse because this amazing experience that's out here screams God's existence. It screams it. So no one has an excuse to say, well, you know, God didn't, he didn't, he didn't show me that he existed. He says, no, 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 no. The voice has been heard throughout the ends of the world. God's sovereign, gracious act of self-disclosure. He initiated it. He said, you know what? I'm going to create this amazing thing, and I'm going to put people in it, and the vastness of this amazing, intricate creation is going to display my glory, and they're going to be licking the dirt one day in their sin and be like, wait a minute. This is an amazing thing. Certainly there's more to life than this. I think there was a song. Okay. No. No excuse for anyone, right? So the idea, we see it already. God initiates His voice, he has made sure that he is able to be observed or known through creation. And he says, did everybody believe? He said, no, everybody didn't. Some heard and chose not to. So again, in the second section, verses 16 through 18, we see God sovereignly take the step towards humanity and humanity having a choice to respond to that step that he took. Section 3, verses 19 through 21. But I ask... Did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God in his amazing, gracious, sovereign hand has taken you and I, who would be considered Gentiles, well, unless somebody here is a, a Jew by birth, that's different, right? Um, but everybody else would be a Gentile, right? And he says, 
based on these Gentiles who for some odd reason have a little bit easier time accepting the idea that Christ is the Messiah. We're like, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. The Bible's true. God exists. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus because I'm going to go to hell if I don't have him, and I'm living a pretty crappy life anyway. He comes in, changes my heart. I see with different eyes. Life looks a lot different. This Jesus thing is real, but it's really tough. It's really hard. I keep falling into sin, but Christ died that we might have life and be forgiven of sin. Even after we come to him, he still says, you know what, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble, you're going to trip over your feet every now and then, but I have paid the price so that you may live in me. So when God sees you and I, after we've accepted Christ into our life, he doesn't see us necessarily. He sees Christ's righteousness because we have believed in his son. And Christ was sinless, yes? And we Gentiles, for some odd reason, seem to have an easier time with accepting the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, whereas his own chosen people, Jews, seem to have a little bit more difficult time accepting that fact. Not all of them, but in general, yes. And he says, I will make them jealous, his own people jealous, through us. Hey, those non-Jews, they seem to be having a good go at it with this whole Messiah thing. Maybe they're getting it. Maybe they got something we didn't understand. And he, in his sovereignty, even though he was rejected by his own people, he says, I love you so much, I'm going to use these people to help draw you back unto myself. God's gracious, sovereign hand in the process of salvation. He is reaching out and initiating the process, and we have the opportunity to respond to it. God's sovereign hand and our moral free responsibility. So much so that he says, even though Israel's continuing to turn his back on me, I have all day long extended my hand to them because they are my people. Now in a room this size, we have a small crowd today, that's okay, but in this room this size, we know that some of us are We consider ourselves born-again Christians, believers, trying to walk the walk, talk the talk, trying our best to do it right, stumble and fall every now and then and hate ourselves for it, but get back up and say, I'm going to walk the straight and narrow and get after it. God's hand is reaching out and saying, you know what? I know you're going to stumble and fall, but come back to me. I know there's people in this room who don't know Jesus, who have simply decided they have heard, you have heard the message, maybe you've heard it several times, and you simply have chosen not to obey not to yield, not to give in. Even though God's been knocking on the door of your heart, you're just thinking, man, this isn't for me. You're playing a risky game. Tomorrow's not promised to no man, to no person, as slang as that sounds. Tomorrow is not, I'm not trying to fear monger, like, oh, he's trying to scare me into salvation. That ain't right. I'm just telling you like it is, right? You have no guarantee that tomorrow will come. And while the door is open for salvation, you should take the opportunity to yield to the Holy Spirit knocking on your door. God has taken the time to extend his hand to you, even though you are rebelling against him and says, come to me. I am your heavenly father. Come to me. I have your best interest in mind, primarily spending eternity with me. Come to me. God is extending his hand to us, even though, Christian or not, rebel, you know, we rebel and sin, he's extending his hand to us. So in this passage, we see it again. God is initiating, 
Some people choose not to believe. Some people do. So we have those, those two things. God's initiating. God is calling on people, trying to bring them in. And then we do have some type of choice, some play in the matter, some equity in the matter. It's not a kind of a forced issue. And you might, ask your, you might be asking, well, Rashawn, okay, I kind of see what you're saying, but it really doesn't apply to me very much. I, I kind of see this idea between you know, moral, free responsibility to choose and this idea that God is initiating the process, but it really doesn't have much to do with me personally. And I would disagree because how you think about God is so important. I'd say it's the most important thing that you can think about. Because if a certain person believes God exists, their behavior, their actions, and their speech is going to reflect that. Yes, because thought and belief precedes action. A lot of athletes in the room, right? At some point, you believed in yourself enough to continue to practice, to continue to run those sprints, to continue to do your footwork on the soccer field, to continue to sit on the free throw line and try to hit 25 in a row, to continue to be on the football field, run my spins, and get my, my footwork right and get my hands right to catch a ball, to try to read things, to get my hips right, to get my wrists right, to get my elbows right, to get my swing on time. You believed enough to act on your practice, Right? You believed enough, whether you were singing, being in choral groups, whether you're doing ministry teams, whether you're involved in theater, you believe in yourself enough to the degree that you act upon that belief, right? So belief precedes action. How we believe about God then is very, if not critically important, critically important. If Frank or Billy or Philip feels like they have an opportunity with Karen, Susan, or Lily, right? Then they will step to old girl. Hey, uh, you know, I was at Tabor last week, and I didn't see you there at the game. I wonder you might want to go to the next away game. Yeah, just just you and me. You know, know, maybe we can take a group if you're uncomfortable with that, right? But if you believe enough that you have a chance with old girl, you will step to her. You will take action, yes? You will take action. So, how we think about things is critically important. So now let's kind of backtrack a little bit. We talked about predestination and election. The, the idea that God initiates the process. He's in sovereign control of the process of salvation. Somebody has to hear. Somebody has to be sent. Somebody has to believe, right? He initiates that process. Well, the idea of predestination and election basically says that God has predestined some to be with him. That he has chosen some to be with him for all eternity. So... The next question we usually ask is, well, what about the ones he didn't choose? Uh, So if the ones he didn't choose, that means they can't go to heaven? And if that's true, then is God good? You know, why would a good God create humanity and then choose some to be with him for all eternity in heaven and choose others to burn in hell forever? That doesn't seem like a good God, right? Seems kind of odd. Well, we know from verse 17... It says that faith comes by hearing. Faith is necessary then for the passage to believe upon the message that was heard from the one who was sent by the God who owns the message. So I'm appealing to your thought process here. Like you got you you to think about this. God sent, message proclaimed, faith is activated or stimulated in the life of the hearer. Thus, then they can believe on the message that was heard. So... God created everyone in his image. We're going we're to concede that point. God created humanity. 
So if God didn't give every single person faith, he wouldn't be good, right? Let's just say this room. If the middle section had faith and the outside sections didn't have faith, the outside sections could not respond to God. You say, where do you get that from, Rashawn? <clears throat> well, let's look at Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So, again, calculate with me. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Because those who come to him who respond to the message must believe that he exists and believe that he exists as a certain kind of God, a God who is a rewarder, a God who is good. So if God created humanity and portions of humanity without faith, that means he created people that cannot please him, which would make him, in a sense, like not good. So how could a good God create people and then say that some have faith and some don't? Well, the Bible is pretty clear that all do have faith. In Romans 12, verses three, verse 3, it says, God has dealt to every person a measure of faith. So that means that everybody in here has faith. And everybody in here can respond to the message of the gospel. And if you say, hey, Rashawn, what do you mean this whole faith thing? I don't get it. I don't, I don't really get what you're getting at here. Well, let me tell you. I didn't see anyone come in here today and check their chair before they sat down. I didn't see anybody go. I didn't see anybody check the bolts. I saw people do this. You had enough faith to do what? To believe that the what? Chair is going to hold you, right? So with that very simple example, you might say, oh, we're Rashawn. That's just an experiment from science. You know, it's a repeatable thing. I can measure it. I can do it over and over and over. And I did it so many times, and I saw it repeat, so now it's a law. So I know that the chair is going to hold me. How do you know the chair is going to hold you tomorrow? How do you know the sun's going to come up tomorrow? How do you know the earth's going to keep rotating? What if it stopped right now? Who's to say that it, sh- it wouldn't stop? Do we have any control over that? But our faith does what? We're like, yeah, I'll go to sleep. I'm expecting tomorrow to come. The sun's going to come up. It's going to be sunrise. and get up and have some pancakes. So we all have faith. The question is, what message are you believing? What message are you believing? Because I guarantee you this, college students, there's a lot of other places that a lot of people could work, but I believe working here is valuable and important, regardless of how it feels any given day, because you're worth it. Hopefully we're getting better as a college year by year. We're going through some funky transitions. Some of you have been here through some of it. But my prayer on a weekly basis is that our college can grow into the kind of college that really, really, really is transformative in our culture because we stand for something that matters. And my question to you is, since we all have faith, what message are you believing? Because there's a message out there for you, right? You're never going to be good enough. Worthless. You're never going to make it amount to anything. Are you going to believe that message? Bigger, better, faster, more. Get another girl. Get another boy. Get another car. Go somewhere else. This place has nothing for you. You're better than them. Go somewhere else. Get bigger, better, faster, more, and then you'll be content. Then you'll be happy if things are better somewhere else. The Bible says godliness plus contentment is great gain. 
Godliness plus contentment is great gain. There is a group called Public Enemy. Rap group back in the late 90s. Actually, they've been relevant for 25 years. And I remember this album. And you can look at it, look at that, that picture, and kind of tell what the, al- the album is about. And this album is basically a black about, so some of you don't get too sensitive here, it's basically about black America buying into a lie. And I can speak on this because, one, I'm a black man, and one, I came from an environment where you're always looking over your shoulder, and you never know what day you're not going to get your freaking teeth busted in, and you're always looking over your shoulder. Yeah, that's right, I came from that environment. Most of you probably wouldn't guess that, but I did. And I saw very clearly, very clearly, a lot of us bought into the lie. Bought into the lie. Matter of fact, we bought into it so well that we began to celebrate it. We began to celebrate the lie that dehumanizes the black man and the black woman. We celebrated dehumanizing ourselves. And for what? We believed a lie. We bought into a message that says, you're only good for entertainment. Shake your butt. Shake your booty. Don't work hard. It's all about getting what you can today. You have no future. Smoke some weed. Tip of 40, get some girls, get some dudes, call it a day. Is that the message we're believing? You can see in that, that graphic, basically Ku Klux Klan, and based on that person on the left, he identifies with Jim Crow, Jim Crow laws. Ha, 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 look at them Negroes killing themselves. <laughs> we got them again. Is that the message we're believing? Because I guarantee you, there are messages coming at you, bombarding you every day. What are you going to believe? How are you going to respond? Because you all have faith. We all have faith. What are you going to believe in? What message are you going to believe in? I'm going to conclude with this passage because this is the message that God has sent to us. He has initiated the process and all of us have the privilege to respond. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the message. I don't care what your parents told you. I don't care what pop culture tells you. I mean, I care what your, care what your, coaches, your coaches tell you. We have pretty good coaches here on the campus, even if you don't think so. we got a pretty good darn crop of coaches. If people are giving you messages that aren't for your best interest, you need to cut them off. Because a lot of people have agendas. You ask yourself, I said I'm going to appeal to your thinking. This is the message that God has given us among many others, but this is a good encapsulation of it. He's reached out to you and me and says, you know what, I'm going to lavish you with my kindness. Accept my offer. It's a free gift. 